their life and through their lips. Bless them as they go to Prince of Jesus. Lord, as we remain here in the sanctuary, Lord, deal with our hearts, deal with our lives, deal with us as we seek to, to, to be your disciples here. Uh, use the words of, 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 of this broken vessel to, to bless your people. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to, to Faith this beautiful Lord's Day morning. We are in a message series on the book of First Chronicles, the, the worship roots. This book focuses a lot on worship, but gospel, the good news of Chronicles. And um, people have many different ideas about God and about church and about the gathering of God's people in church in formal worship. And here's a question. What makes a good church experience? What makes a good worship experience? What is great worship? Well, that's what we want to explore this morning in, in this, this passage here in chapter 13. What is great worship? The passage is chapter 13 of the First Chronicles. I'm, we're going to read it now. It's on to your right and my left on the screen. It's in your, your few Bibles. Uh, these 14 verses. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebohemeth to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. And from the house of Abinadab in Uzzah in Ohio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chedon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. God's word. Well, what an interesting passage we have before us. The ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant. Many, many people only know it from the Indiana Jones trilogy of movies, 
The Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford. That was the title of the first one of the three, and it talks about the Lost Ark of the Covenant. That, uh, that Lost Ark, where it, it ended up in the hands of the, the hated Nazis. And the adventure follows Indiana Jones and his buddies, his colleagues, as they risk their lives to try to recapture the Lost Ark. In the scriptures, the ark was stolen during the early days of the prophet Samuel during the battles of the Philistines. And David takes a throne that he sought, and he, he sought to unite the kingdoms now. And very early on, he wants to make probably the first priority of his kingship the reclaiming of the ark for God's people. So he gets the people to agree. He calls some meetings and gathers his leaders and gathers the people to agree to a, a great, wonderful celebration. And I want to look at that. It's sort of a parade, a, a, a pilgrimage, a, a, a triumphal entry that is what they had in mind. But, it, but it, it's a humongous event, a celebrating ark and what all the ark stood for. But I want to look at it in terms of what worship is all about. There's some very, several very important principles here about worship. Because our God desires and deserves great worship from his people. He desires and he deserves it. Great worship. And so my title is High Intensity Worship for a High Holy God. I want to seek to talk about the fact that God includes all people, all of God's people in great worship. That, that great worship celebrates his presence and that great worship follows his word. We're talking about unified worship, celebratory worship, and biblical worship this morning. Now, first verse, great worship seeks to unite God's holy people. The first six verses of the passage we see is David, look at, the, look at verse 2. David says to, the, to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you. So he's speaking, he wants to speak to the entire assembly of Israel. He gathers the leaders in the first verse. And, but, but they're to go and they're, they're to make this uh, uh, thing happen, not just among the leaders, but among all the people who would gather together to make this united worship experience a, a success. And again, this is, according to Chronicles, this is the, the first major action uh, that, that David does. Now, from, from Samuel's, we know that it wasn't chronologically the first thing he did. But in, in the mind of the chronicler, this is important. This is the first major thing that he does. He wants to unite them in worship the true living God, the way God has called them to worship him. He wants to restore the ark back to its rightful place in the center of worship. Well, Richard Pratt says, the ark was the centerpiece of Israel's tabernacle and symbolized the footstool of her divine king. It's described as the place where the Lord is enthroned between the cherubim and symbolized the presence of God with his people. I have an image here of that. You heard the description of the reading of scripture from Weldon. There it is. That's, that's what he was describing. That, as God gave it to Moses, that's a depiction of the wonderful golden, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat at the top. And in, in Exodus 25, God gave Moses that design, and, Moses, and they designed it just in that same way. And the, the, the Ark led them in battle. You might remember in the, in the book of, of Joshua, as they were about to go to the Promised Land, they, they're, they're about to cross the Jordan River, and, and they took the, the God did a miracle similar to the Red Sea miracle, but another miracle at Jordan. And the ark led them as they went through the Jordan River. And, and there they, they, they carried the ark, the Levite carried the ark on their, on their uh, uh, shoulders as they were supposed to. And then as, as uh, the Jewish history goes on, um, the book of 1 Samuel, 
Chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, some interesting things happen as the ark is captured, ark is captured in, in, in their battles with the Philistines, and the various Philistine cities began to, 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 to take the ark, and, and the ark, God did some interesting things during, as it went to some of those cities. My favorite story is when it went to the city of Ashdod, and, and the god of Ashdod was, is, is, I don't know if it's Dagon or Dagon, I don't know how to pronounce it, but the god of, uh, they put the, the ark in the temple of, of, of Dagon and woke up the next day and the, 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 god, the big god of Dagon was, was, was broken on the floor as if it was bowing to the ark. And then the next day they, they did the same thing. Let's, 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 let's fix the ark, let's fix the, 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 the idol god Dagon and put it in the temple and that day it was bowed down, the head was cut off and the hands were cut off. And they said, what did, what's with this ark? This ark's got some power. More than our God. So, that was, so the ark went from, there's a little map here I have of the, the, the meanderings of the ark. From one city, it would be there. One, one, one man said, uh, Wilcock, the ark was passed from one Philistine city to another like a hot potato, leaving burnt fingers wherever it went. First Samuel 4 through 7. But, so, but it landed in the, the, the house of Abinadab at, at Kiriath-Jerim, um, which is about eight miles west of Jerusalem. You see it there. There, on the bottom of that map there. And uh, stayed there many years, many years. So David gathers the people now, years later, in, in, in our passage today. And one of the things that you need to see is that, is that he pulls people from all parts of the kingdom together. He's unifying the kingdom from all parts of, of, of the north and the south, the east and the west of, of the Jewish region there. And uh, the chronicler gives us that geographical statement in verse, verses 5 and 6, all the way from the Nile River in the south to the far northeast, uh, the region known as Lebo Hamath. You see, see, again, you see the map there, the different uh, 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 areas there. David wants to, to create a unity movement among his people. So he wants to unite them around the worship of God and the ark, which God said was where I will uh, uh, dwell with you in a, in a symbolic way. And so David has the idea, let's have a, let's have a parade. We'll, we'll parade from Jerusalem, we'll go get the ark, then we'll bring the ark back, and the, and the people would come, and, and they would rejoice and celebrate that, that, again, another great victory was taking place. Let's not miss a couple things. Something very simple is happening here. The, the, the one is, is David understands the importance of gathering formally as a community, how, how gathering formally to worship God unites people. The importance of, 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 of covenant renewal celebration, which is what they're doing. They're celebrating their God and their, their, their peopleness as a people of God. It's what David is, is seeking to do here. And so he's leading a very significant unity movement. And uh, we seek to reflect that in the, we believe the New Testament church is to be that kind of a, a movement that, that brings different people together with one voice, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the, the New Testament church is all about. And we're called to gather together. God calls us people together every week to begin every week worshiping Jesus Christ because he's the firstborn of the dead and he's the preeminent one. And so we begin our week in worship with God's people celebrating the resurrection of Jesus that happened on the first day of the week. That's why we gather on the first day now. But God, you know, and, and that happens every week, and Christians are, are called to do that. But you know, there's also times, like in this passage, of special celebrations. 
times where you, where the, special events where you commemorate things that are going on. And we, again, we have that in our, in our Christian world today. We, our congregation, we, we celebrate Good Friday with various churches in our, in our region, our Presbytery. A special service on, on Good Friday, remembering the, the death of Christ for us. We also have a special service, by the way, you can mark this on your calendar, on December 24th. Now you said, yeah, the candlelight service, December 24th. Just remember this year, it's a Saturday night, which means Sunday morning's the next day. Don't forget that. But again, that's a special service, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, December 24th each year. One thing that's happening very soon is, is the celebration of what many call the Reformation Day. We, our church has not regularly done that, but some of us are going to do it. It's in the bulletin. Some of us are going to participate this, this year in a Reformation Day service uh, here in our presbytery. But Reformation Day, you all, the Protestant Reformation began October 31st, 1517, 499 years ago. So I mean, next year is going to be a great celebration. You're going to hear a lot about it. But 499 years ago, Martin Luther, the monk, uh, 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 the German monk, nailed on the, Wittenberg, the door of the Wittenberg door, uh, church 95 theses, 95 suggestions about how, how to, to reform the church because the church was out of, out of whack. And, and, and the 95 theses were nailed and discussed throughout Europe during, the, during those days. And, and, and a movement began that, that clarified the gospel, that indeed the just shall live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works, not by supporting the church and giving to the church or being in the church or being baptized in the church. No, the just shall live by faith. That's what the Reformation was about. So again, we, we celebrate the Reformation uh, as, as a congregation, and we're going to do that uh, in a couple weeks. It's in your bulletin at uh, Timonian Church. But uh, celebration. A couple, a couple quick applications. Don't, don't take public worship for granted. I think often we do. It, it is still the place where God has promised to meet his people in unique ways. Think of the nature of worship in a congregation. It's a community of people with a common set of beliefs and commitments. And God promises to show up, to speak to them. Public worship is unlike private devotions. Private worship, which is also, we, both, we need both. But there's something different about worshiping among God's people. Many say, you know, in this day, I can hear the message on a podcast. In fact, it sounds better than Pastor Stan. Well, that's true. Probably does. But... That, whoever's doing that podcast isn't your pastor. You don't have that relationship. You don't have that covenant commitment like Craig and I do. There's something about hearing the word of God from your covenant pastor that God says, I will show up and I will sanctify you through that process. And, and you may not sense it, but that's what God has promised to do. Um, we're, 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 to, we're, to, we're to build one another up. We're to encourage each other. We're, God, the word will stretch us. It will challenge us. It will equip us to serve God in, in the context that God has for us, and God has chosen to do those things in our life through the body of Christ where we worship, the people that we see all the time. By the way, God is not promised to do that through direct supernatural means, which is one of the things that, that, that hangs many people up. They want to get an automatic uh, thrill and, and, and grow in that way. No, God, it's through the ordinary means of worshiping God, being with God's people, hearing the word of God, praying that God sanctifies and builds his people up. Don't take for granted even the fact that we have the freedom in our nation to do what we're doing right now. Not every believer in Jesus Christ in the world has that freedom. 
And secondly, don't take for granted the uniqueness of doing that in a unified body. Many Christians worship Jesus Christ, but they don't do it in the context of the kind of unified body that God has blessed us with. Look around. Just take a, take a look around. What you'll find is a lot of different kinds of people. A lot of different kinds of people. And that's a blessing. It really is a blessing. That God has, has, has done a work here uh, in this congregation from, from various ethnic groups and backgrounds and socioeconomic experiences and, and, and cultures and lifestyles. But people with various backgrounds coming together. Yeah, yesterday we had our leadership retreat. One of the first times in a while we've had a joint leadership retreat of men and women leaders of the church. We, 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 we invited many of the different le levels of le layers of leadership. There's a great picture that, we, that was taken at the end. Um, and as I was looking at that picture and thinking about it, talking to my wife, I said, you know what, that, that, that picture of, that, of the leadership of our church reflects the body of our church. Just as you, that is you, a unique picture of, of many shades, so is our congregation. And that's a blessing. And that's something that we should not take for granted. God, God, God has given us a diverse body of believers. And by the way, some of you may not have gotten the invitation. That's because you're probably our, our past leaders, and you're, you're taking a break, and maybe you didn't get the word. Our apologies. We'll try to get to you next time we do a retreat. Um, you were invited, but we didn't think about it, making that invitation very, clean, very, very plain. But we had a great time, uh, that, uh, 24 hours together, as men and women in the retreat up at Camp Wormy too. But we're, we're, God is blessed with a church that's very diverse. And I, and I want to say something about that very briefly. Because people from various uh, cultural perspectives can have very divergent political perspectives. And that's a challenge in our day, in the day in which we live. I mean, whether you're a, a blue state Christian or a red state Christian, <laughs> You need to be aware that you have brothers and sisters that aren't like you when it comes to how they process their faith and how they apply politics. Why am I saying this? People process their faith differently. And if, if, you're not, if, if you don't allow others in the body from different perspectives, from different backgrounds, with different experiences, to process the faith in, in, in the way that they have processed their faith, it can destroy your fellowship. It can destroy this fellowship. It could. Th there's potential with what's going on in our political world to destroy this fellowship. Are you aware of that? Are you praying about that? I am. Because ultimately, the solution isn't from the, the Democrats or the Republicans. Ultimately, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So whether it's Trump or Clinton, Jesus reigns. That's what we believe. And the ark reminds us of that. The ark reminds us that he's the king. Great worship should unify God's people, not around politics or sociology, but around Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. The second thing about great worship, it celebrates God's holy presence. It celebrates the holy presence of God. Look at verse 8. David and all Israel were celebrating, celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. I kind of laughed when I saw the worship set today. I didn't plan that. 
But here we have the various instruments that we don't always have every week. We pull them out occasionally. I don't know if Mark orchestrated that or not, but here we are, just a, with, with, with the, the, the various uh, uh, musical instruments expressing great praise to a great God. Amen? You know, it was John Stott, that British theologian, the late John Stott, who says that the worship of the true and living God should never, ever be boring. And I agree with that. The presence of God, it should be a celebration. Through, and, and often that celebration comes through the signs and the symbols that, that we see. A sign. What is a sign? A sign is something that, that says something, but it, it, it doesn't point to itself. It points to something else. A sign points to something else. Uh, there's a sign here. Uh, welcome. Marilyn welcomes you. Mason Dixon line. Uh, when you, you know, that sign is not Marilyn, but it's pointing you to Marilyn, saying, welcome to Marilyn. You're there. A sign points to something. The ark is not to be worshipped, but the ark points to something. It points to something that's significant. This week, the, the, our staff got to attend, got to visit uh, the African American uh, Museum of, uh, of History and Culture on, on Wednesday, and uh, many signs and symbols of many different ex things we saw. It was a, quite an experience, quite a, quite a emotional experience in, in, in many ways. You saw the joys and, and the and the sorrows of, of the journey of African American people. There was one so-called souvenir that struck me. I think Emily took this picture of. Um, <clears throat> This was, this was the rope uh, that was used in the hanging of Matthew Williams in 1931 in Salisbury, Maryland. I'd never heard of this incident. He was dragged from his hospital bed and lynched. And a reporter, a, a Baltimore reporter, uh, got, got a piece of the rope, and um, it's been passed down, and there's, a comment, there's some comments you can't read there, but, but that, that's part of the rope. But, but that's not the rope. That's a, that points us to the experience. It's a sign. See, in this passage, the ark was a symbol of the presence of God. And he evoked incredible joy and enthusiasm. But the ark was not God. The ark was, was something pointing to God. In Scripture, there are visible symbols that are used to point to unseen realities. We have some, some verbal symbols and signs. We, we talk about God being father, God being king. Jesus as the great shepherd, as a door, as a light. These are verbal images that enhance our understanding of, of who he is and our appreciation for worship of our God. They point us to deep realities about who he is. But in worship, we also have visual aids. We call them sacraments, two, two particular sacraments, uh, pointing us to God's grace. We have the, the baptism, which, which points to the fact of in the gospel we're connected to Christ and to the body of Christ who are connected to him as well. And then there's the Lord's Supper, pointing to the fact that the connection to Christ and his people is grounded in the cross. It's grounded in the cross. Visual aids pointing us to the deep truth of our faith. The presence of God is sometimes celebrated with great joy, great energy, great enthusiasm. We see that in, in verse 8. Worship, there's there to be, in, in great worship, a variety of moods, a variety of tones. Many who come from what's called high church backgrounds may, might, might have experienced great uh, uh, volume through the, 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 the sounding of the pipe organs as they pull out all the stops and, and, and beautifully play, skillfully play uh, great hymns of the faith. Creating a sense of creating a sense of majesty and, and the, the might and the power of God. 
Other cultures, they do that with their voices. As they shout with volume to the Lord. As they make a joyful noise unto the Lord, as it says in, in, in Psalm 100. And, that's, and there's a time in worship for great volume because God is mighty and powerful. And there's a time to be overwhelmed to the point where even your ears might hurt. Because that too, our, our God's a mighty, powerful God. You know what? It's a time in worship to be still and to know that He is God. There's a time in great worship for both, for the many tones, the many moods, because God comes to us in many different ways, even in, in, in the context of our worship. There should be times of great joy, of energy. Times of great reflection and silence. Times of weeping and repentance. Times of deep thought. Times of being reminded of the most simple, timeless truths. Like God is so good. He's so good to me. Not a lot of theology there, but there's a lot of theology there. When God is present, he has a lot to say in many different ways. My um, nephew, years ago, he's, not, he's older now, but he was a teenager at the time. The first time he, he came to our church, um, he's from Richmond, Virginia, he's a Baptist, whatever. And um, he said, this good church you got here, I have a, I have a question. Amen can say this to me. Y'all need a new sound system or something? It's just not loud enough in here. And I said, amen. Uh, well, some people, this is too loud for some people. You got to understand, we're a diverse church. We, we do things a little bit different than maybe the church experience that you are used to. And that is good. But, but each of us has a certain cultural comfort zone that God wants to challenge. Some of us don't know how to worship in silence. We need to do that. Some of us don't know how to worship with volume. We need to, we need to figure out how to do that more and more. Last night, uh, Chicago, they were, they, I don't know if they worship, but they celebrated with a lot of noise, a lot of volume. The, uh, the Chicago Cubs, uh, for the first time since 1945, are going to the World Series. There's a great celebration going on in Chicago. Um, people in Cleveland are saying, well, what about us? They haven't been for a long time either, but Chicago has been 71 years. This woman here, no more next year. No more next year. This is, this is next year. In other words, all they say, we'll wait till next year. We'll win next year. This is next year. We've won. And you can, see, you can see she probably was there in 1945 when they last won. And she, 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 there were many people weeping and crying as they uh, finally uh, are going back to the World Series. The prophet Isaiah had promised one who would be Emmanuel, God with us. He would come to a people in exile and, and bring freedom and salvation and deliverance. And he would destroy their enemies he would be the divine God with us, divine one. And they are now, this exilic community, they're experiencing this restoration, this deliverance. And his presence brought unity. His presence brought anticipation of peace. His presence brought incredible, energetic joy. We sang earlier today, heal us, Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God brings healing to our hearts, to our souls. Great worship celebrates God's holy and the last thing I see in the passage is, is the last couple of verses, verses 9 to 14. Great worship seeks to obey God's holy word. Great worship seeks to obey the word of God. 
Look, look at verse 10. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Difficult, troubling words as we read it again. In fact, we see David was angry at what God did in killing Uzzah on the spot. Let's look at it. There's a couple things here. Uh, in Exodus chapter 25, we, talk, we saw this. You, you shall put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. There were poles they, they would put on their shoulders. They were not to use a cart. They used a cart. They used a cart. The, the, the Philistines, back in 1 Samuel, that, they, they figured out that that was a way of doing it. And they, they said, let's, let's imitate the way that the Philistines did it. Not to do that. The second thing, they touch the ark. Uh, in Numbers 4.15, the sons of Kohath, that, that, that tribe, uh, shall, shall come to, to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. The Kohath is part of the Levitical uh, tribe. Uh, R.C. Sproul, great, great theologian, says this about this difficult passage. The Ark of the Covenant was being carried in a cart. This was not the way it was designed to be carried. It should have been on the shoulders of priests. When one of the oxen stumbled, the ark looked like it was going to fall. Uzzah keeps it from tipping in the mud. God re God's reaction was not, thank you, Uzzah. No. God killed Uzzah instantly. Uzzah believed that mud would desecrate the ark. But mud is just dirt and water obeying God. Mud is not evil. God's law was not meant to keep the ark pure from the earth, but from the dirty touch of human hand. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt. And God said, no. If you're like me, that's hard. It's hard. To, why is that hard for you and me? Because we don't understand God well enough. We just don't understand holiness well enough. We don't understand the implications of disobedience well enough. And we're a people who take grace for granted. That's who we are. See, if God were not to withhold divine justice, none of us would survive one day. There are occasionally reminders in Scripture that a holy God is not playing around. In, in, in Leviticus chapter 11, Nadab and Abihu, they offered strange fire and, and God instantly. In, in Joshua chapter 6, 7, and 8, uh, he and his clan, they, they took some of the spoils of Jericho. It was found out and, and, and instantly they, they, they died. You say that was just Old Testament. In the book of Acts chapter 5, uh, Peter is before Ananias and Sapphira who have lied to him and to the Holy Spirit by saying they gave it all. When they hadn't given it all, they'd held some of it back. No one told them they had to give it all, but they wanted to look like they gave it all to God. And instantly, they were judged. Occasionally, God shows us in Scripture that he's not playing around. He wants us to follow him. The classic illustration from the movie of the Raiders of the Lost Ark that I mentioned earlier is in the ending. Towards the end, the, the, the climax scene is as the Nazis are experiencing divine judgment. You remember, if you've seen the movie, you remember the scene. It's kind of awesome as you watch it. They didn't realize that this ark, this artifact, uh, they thought it would bring, bring blessing and supernatural power for them. But it actually brought the presence of a holy God who confronts 
unholiness. And it brought judgment to them. And the sober reality is that apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, that's what we all deserve in the, face, in the presence of holiness. See, I am Uzzah. You are Uzzah. We all deserve instant death as transgressors before God. But the gospel tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the greatness of the gospel. Matthew Henry applies this in a couple of different ways. Let the sin of us warn us all to take heed of presumption, rashness, and irreverence in dealing about holy things, and not to think that a good intention will justify a bad action. In our communion with God, we must carefully watch over our own hearts, lest familiarity breed contempt, and we think God is in any way beholden to us. And he says, let the punishment of Uzzah convince us that the God with whom we have to do is a jealous God. His death, like that of Nadab and Abihu, proclaims aloud that God will be sanctified in those that come nigh unto him, and that the nearer any are to him, the more displeased he is with our presumptuous. Let us not dare to trifle with God in our approaches to him, and yet let us, Henry says, through Christ come boldly to the throne of grace, for we're under the dispensation of liberty and grace, not of bondage and terror. The point is, this part of the text points us to the importance of heeding the written word of God in our worship. The passage ends, the last verse, chapter, uh, verse 14. Um, we see God's grace even here. Ra rather than have the ark do more damage to Jerusalem, they, 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 he halts this processional. He's cautious. David's cautious. He delays the return and and stops it at the border. And it stays in the home of a man named Obed-Edom for three months. For three months. Now, now he was, Obed-Edom was a Levite. He was a musician. We find this out later in the Chronicles. A Levite, a musician, a gatekeeper. He was from the, 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 the family of Kohath, the Kohathite. And uh, so he was qualified. But he lived in, in, in the area of Gath. So he wasn't in Jerusalem. He was kind of in a mixed area near the border there. So David's cautious, and David figures out, look, if something's going to happen with this ark uh, doing, doing, doing judging somebody, I, won't, I don't want to be in my house. I want to be over there in his house. So, that, so that's kind of what David's doing here. For three months, he wants to be cautious, wants to see if, if God is done with the judgment here. And, um, and yet, for those three months, what does the text tell us? That the ark was a source of blessing. It blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. See, the presence of God, the presence of God was the blessing in that household. When God's people come together with hearts that are repentant and sincere, hearts are committed to hearing, committed to obeying his word, that's when the Lord shows up in power and love and strength and transformative uh, uh, conviction. Michael Wilcox says, the ark is a symbol of God's changeless grace in changing times. What is this ark? What is this ark? Hebrews 9 talks to us about uh, the ark. It contained three items. Let me close this with this. There were three items in the ark. The, olden, the golden urn, which held the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of, new, of the covenant. The urn, the golden urn holding the manna, points us to Christ, the great king, who provides for his people, provided manna in the wilderness for the children of Israel. He's a great king who provides. The, the, the Aaron staff points to the fact that Christ is the great priest, the great high priest, who fulfills the 
all that we need of one, the only truly qualified mediator between God and, and, and sinful human beings, Christ, the great high priest, Aaron's staff that budded. And the table of, uh, tablets of the covenant point to, to one who is the great prophet, who gives us the authoritative understanding of God's will, pointing us to Jesus, the great prophet. Prophet, priest, and king. The ark points to Jesus Christ. High-intensity worship for a high, holy God. God desires it. God deserves it. And God hates it when we come with hearts that aren't sincere. But he rejoices when we come with honesty, sincerity, humility, expectancy. When we give him the time and the praise that he and he alone deserves. May we bring to him each week, each time we gather, that which is sincere, that which is united, that which is energetic, that which is according to his word, that we might be blessed and to his eternal glory. Let's pray. Lord, at first glance, this passage is a tough one to get at. But it's about worship. It's about worshiping you, something that we do regularly, but we don't do it as well as we should. Use this passage to help us to reflect on who you are and who we are as your children, as those whom you have blessed with grace. May we be a people who together, in unison, lift up and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's close with uh, the singing of God is so good. We'll do it a cappella, and I will lead us. Let's stand and sing. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to God's benediction. May the love of God, our Heavenly Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, and the presence and the power of the Spirit of God be with you now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you.